Welcome to Something to Eat and Something to Read, a podcast for people who love reading and cooking and reading about cooking. My name is Sophie Hansen. I'm a food writer from Orange, New South Wales, and I'm here digitally with my wonderful co-host, Jermaine. How are you, Jermaine? Hi, Sophie. I'm very well. Now I'm sitting down getting ready to talk to you with my cup of tea. (laughs) (laughs) I should have said before, Jermaine is a bibliotherapist and psychotherapist, and you are deep in lots of reading and work at the moment. You were just telling me you've got 60 pages of Freud to read in the next day or so. Yes, that's right. This is some light relief. <laughs> what's before getting back to Freud? We can we come back to Freud another day? And I, what's his take on um, food? Is he got? He's, he'd have all sorts of opinions. On food. On... Oh, he'd have a lot to say about food <laughs> and taking things in and digesting things and swallowing them. So yeah, another day. Another day. Well, I mean, today we are talking about emotions and food um, with our mm. book, which I'll um, throw to you to introduce. It's sort of the perfect book for our show, isn't it? Emotions Mm. and food Mm -hmm. (laughs) together and what that might mean. And so the book for this month is actually my choice and it's a book of essays called My First Popsicle, an Anthology of Food and Feelings and it's edited by Zasha Mehmet. I didn't realise she's actually an actress, Mm. I think most well-known for that TV show The Flight Attendant. Have you seen that? No, but I mean I... Loved her in Girls. She was Shoshana, who um, I'm a big Girls fan. I loved that series. And, yeah, so she was Shoshana in that and she played that so well. Um, Any Girls fans will be very familiar with her and love her. Uh, Yeah, so I was... um, I was thrilled to come across that, um, that fact when you chose this and actually a few girls, writers and actors pop up in here, like Andrew Reynolds, who um, I adore writes a really funny piece um as well so anyway back to your intro (laughs) okay oh there you go so you actually because I'd never heard of her before actually I think what attracted me was seeing David Sedaris had an essay in here yeah um I was actually thinking today before we met how did I even come across this book because um and it must have just been something that came up in a feed somewhere I think because I'm not even sure how easily available I mean I read it on my Kindle mm. um, but you've got a hard copy actually don't you? I so did and I just got a local bookshop I called them and they ordered it in and it didn't take too long so right. thank you Collins oh, okay. yep. but it wasn't on the oh, well, shelves well, but it's easy to get if you want to order it in well yes yeah, so these essays Zasha actually describes as literary potluck which is quite a fun mm. play on books and food because they really I think this is the biggest strength actually was that these essays are just so diverse Mm -hmm. so she came up with the idea of the anthology after going to meet friends for dinner with her husband and the friend the other couple were late and when they arrived they apologized for being late but they'd just given their toddler son his first popsicle which is just like an ice block isn't it yeah I think it is like a version of a like an icy, like an icy pole. That's what I think of. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, so they'd just given their son his first one, and they couldn't um, step away from watching him experience this. And they show they took a video, showed Zasha, and she was saying that it was like watching all the emotions in the world play across his face. Mm-hmm. Um, like she said, he hit all the big ones: fear, confusion, dislike, distaste, sadness, joy, jubilation. It was all there. And it was all new. And that really got her thinking about these first experiences that we forget there was a first experience. And what is that like to discover those different tastes? Mm -hmm. So she thought how universal it is that food is intertwined with um, memory and emotion. And and then she was desperate to think of, uh, to hear other people's stories about it. So I think there's 49 different um, essays in this collection. They are people from all different walks of life, including actors. Um, obviously, Sophie, that you knew of, but um, also writers, chefs, a singer in there, there's film directors. The only sort of criteria she gave was that they had to write about food and feelings. Mm. So the result of that is as, um, is as full a list of feelings as what played across this little boy's face when he had his first a popsicle, actually. And there's everything there, isn't there, from childhood memories, rites of passage, different cultural foods, food with sadness and loss, people's difficult relationships with food, 
celebrations of chain restaurants, expensive restaurants, going to eat out or eating alone, eating while pregnant, their memorable drinks in there. It's just that diversity that kept me curious to read on to the next essay. Mm. But um, how about you? Yes, I loved it. And I think um, we've talked about this before. I think anthologies or short story collections are such a great way to sort of slide back into reading if you, you know, might be hitting a bit of bump or like me, you've just been completely absorbed in the world of succession and all the television shows you watch and then you need to start reading again. (laughs) You know, you can just pick it up. And I was reading this during the day, actually, when I was having my lunch, I worked from home and I just give myself like an essay a day to read. And it's a really nice way to Mm. go through it. So I loved it. And I love an anthology. And, you know, like we said in our interview with Sarah Winman, who wrote Still Life last year, well, she said food is emotional, like food is so emotional. You, you, it's impossible almost to separate, I think, food and feelings. So, of course, mm. I loved this book and I, like you, I really loved how it ran the gamut from all the feelings and all the sort of situations that life throws up. And I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, this idea of, to me at least, um, food is important to a, a good gathering and to a good experience but it's also it's the whole context that you're having that food in and Matt Flanders in his fabulous piece about cookie salad which I have never heard of before it's like a dessert that you crumble the cookie (laughs) over but they call it cookie salad um and he says it's not so much about what it tastes like but who made it and who I enjoy it with I think I feel really strongly in agreements with with Matt as well so I I loved it I thought it was it's a great book they're really well written and there's recipes throughout nearly everybody pops a recipe in with their with their essay so it's it's rich rich pickings yeah I mean some of those recipes I don't know I want to try like the <laughs> the cookies are the tin spaghettios and the, um, but no yeah there were some actual food recipes in there too weren't there yeah yeah probably the recipe I, I think I will try more than anything is is the um shallot um vinaigrette which I mean we can always use oh. another a vinaigrette hey like another really good one by Stephanie Danler who also wrote Sweet Bitter. I'm not sure if you've read that. They've turned it into a television show. No. It's really good, Sweet Bitter. It's a romance, kind of sort of a romance, set in a New York high-end restaurant. It's a great read. I loved it. Oh, yeah. um, and she she wrote that. I've jumped ahead a bit, but did you want to talk a little bit about that that essay? Because I know that you quite liked it as well, Stephanie Danler's one. Yes. No, I was just thinking, actually, that was the one where um, it's about rebuilding her life after her divorce. Yes. Isn't it? Yeah. That essay. Yeah. She talks then about her and her husband's marriage. She said it was like Laurie Colwyn's um, domestic, domestic sensuality. Sensualist. Sensualist, sorry, yeah. Yeah, I loved that. I thought, yeah, that she sort of after her divorce, she, she couldn't cook for almost a year, I think she, she said, and it was just going to the markets one day mm. and seeing this perfect shallot. And, and then going home and making a dressing and then the salad around it. And that, that was her kind of entry into cooking for herself again, building herself up again, which I loved. That thought of um, being a domestic sensualist just also reminds me of what we've always said about how cooking invokes all the senses, which is why it can be so grounding and helpful. But there's something quite romantic in that Laurie Colwyn idea of being a sensualist, a domestic in the sensualist. art of domesticity. Yeah, I love that. I love how mm. Laurie just pops up nearly in every episode we do, just so naturally. She just kind of comes yes. from all sorts of different angles. <laughs> I know, I know. I was She's our through line. <laughs> She's our through line. I think you also liked the Whitney Cummings's "Go Figure" um, essay. Oh, I loved that one. I don't know if it was actually, I think I had quite a number of favourites actually, but this one I really enjoyed because she really takes that idea of food as a metaphor mm-hmm. for emotion and life all the way through. And and this idea that there's a food that has remained an important part of your life for throughout your life, I thought was an interesting idea that this that figs, her love of figs, which began with her grandmother's Fig Newton biscuits which I think and I can't remember the name of them here but I think we used to call them pillow biscuits when I was a child but yeah they were like dried fruit and fig I've always hated them the biscuit yeah we call them <laughs> and it's funny, you know, I don't like, I'm not a fan of dried fruit <laughs> I squashed them. Yeah. I'm not a fan of dried fruit usually as you know in cooking but I, as a kid I didn't they were sort of a treat one mum always bought them because 
we kids didn't love them so much that so they were always, I think, left. So they oh. were the one biscuit that was always in the jar at our house because we'd dig around trying to get the other ones and leave always the squash available. ones. Yeah. I mean, they're not terrible, but they definitely weren't my favourite. So I enjoyed this one too. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so with Whitney, she then said when she then she had an eating disorder during adolescence and so the fig newton biscuits were out, but she realised she could keep eating the figs. And she wrote, which I thought was quite poignant, all through college I was obsessed with dried figs. It was such a perfect journey for me. Take something with an ugly outside, put it in your mouth and reveal the wonders of the inside. Mm. And then she sort of takes that metaphor a bit further and realises how she actually really loves crusted around goopy things, she calls them, mm. meaning like like a Cadbury cream egg or the, the hard shell and the soft centre. And she says, oh, maybe it's symbolic of me as a person, as a comedian, where I present a tough exoskeleton on the outside, but on the inside I'm secretly just a very sensitive marshmallow. And then, and she always had this thing of, or association with figs being about fertility. I think actually her grandmother told her at the beginning that figs were a symbol of fertility or something. And now she feels that she's in this stage of life where she's trying to work out whether or not she'll have children and figs have yet again become this big comfort food to the point where she has a fig tree growing in her garden and she talked about how every morning she takes a coffee and walks out to the tree and and thinks like my fig tree my body will yield what it yields and I'll be grateful for whatever I get figs have become my daily reminder to live life on life's terms I love that and we have a fig tree just outside our kitchen as well and and I similarly in that short window of time when they're ripening and ripe I would do the same I'd walk out and I'd because it kind of just yields when it wants to yield you know one will be perfectly ripe one morning and then the next morning Mm -hmm. so yeah I like that that sort of daily exploration of okay how many figs am I going to get today and some days there's enough to make jam and then there's some days there's like one fig that's ripe it might be just my tree, but right. I liked that idea of her going out with a coffee and being grateful for whatever she got from her fig tree all her life. Yeah, her well, it must um, be a fig thing. Yeah, she talks about the same thing that sometimes there's all this fruit and other times or well, half of it's eaten yeah. um, by rats or um, squirrels, I think. We've got the birds here. here. We've got the possums that are the problem and the birds, yeah. Yeah, no, I loved, um, that. I loved that one. Yeah, and also the the ball buster, Andrew Bevan's meatball um article was oh. cracker. <laughs> <laughs> that was my other favorite one too this meatball ptsd <laughs> and so that one you can just picture it can't you like he's a lover of meatballs he's out on valentine's day for dinner with his lover at this favorite italian restaurant and like what could go wrong and the beginning of the essay is all about how much he adores his boyfriend he's the ideal husband and he's so lucky and he feels so happy to be there and he orders his meatballs and his boyfriend orders gnocchi and then halfway through the meal mid-chew and again he makes some quip about how he always bites off more than he can chew mm-hmm. so he has a full mouthful of meatball his boyfriend tells him that he he wants to break up and he's not sure he wants to be in a relationship and Andrew's unable to speak with this mouthful of meatball and he and all he can think is how he's never going to be able to eat meatballs again and they do break up. And even when recounting the breakup story, the meatballs are like a, a star part. And he talks about one friend emailing him back saying, I'm sorry about your boyfriend and the meatball. Yeah. But then ultimately the meatballs save his heartache because one night when he's feeling really sad, he finds that can of SpaghettiOs at the back of the cupboard and he writes, isn't it curious that when we're either extremely happy or in supreme pain, that we turn to the same food for assurance and, more importantly, reassurance. It was time to reframe and regain custody of these reliable, albeit heavily artificially preserved balls on my own now very bite-sized terms. I took a bite. I was going to be okay. I'm okay. <laughs> I like this idea of regaining custody of a food after you've had a trauma with it because you can't be cross <laughs> with meatballs for long, right? Like meatballs are such a... Wonderful part of life, but he wrote that bit so well where he's he had this huge mouthful, and in that moment he's getting dumped, and he's like, I don't know what to do. Do I like spit it out into a napkin? Do I? And it, it was this sort of prolonged awkward <laughs> silence. But then he was like, Actually, it's giving me time to think. How am I going to actually respond to this? Because I've got to swallow this enormous mm. mouthful that I've taken. 
But I think that we've all probably had foods that have been ruined for us by the situation, that idea of reclaiming custody of it. Because there was another one, Ruth Reichel, mm. um, a wonderful food writer, she wrote about an experience with honey and that honey cake that they find, her friend and her in the woods when they're young children, and it turned off turned her off honey yeah. forever. And, in fact, I just listened to her being interviewed on Julia Louise Dreyfus's wonderful podcast, Wiser Than Me. I don't know if you've come across it yet. It's great. Mm-hmm. It, I have. It's good, isn't it? And Ruth, there's an episode with her and where she talks about how she just can, can't come at honey. Like she's completely ruined for honey forever um, because of that experience. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it made me think I had a really bad honey experience too. Such a random story, but I was lucky enough to live in Paris for a while um, after uni and I flattered with this Dutch girl and she was a, a model and was always on these diets and I was definitely not a model. But once she made us go in this rice diet that we ate rice for a week, like just white rice. I mean, can you imagine in Paris, like, God, I just sort of kicked my former self. And for dinner we were allowed to stir honey through the rice. I mean, it's so disgusting. I think I lasted two days. Oh. But it really, God, the idea of honey and rice just makes me want to throw up now and it did it did damage honey for mm-hmm. me for a while but I'm back now you'll be, I'll be glad to know <laughs> oh right that's but not with rice <laughs> no no rice stayed I, I took a while off took a few years off rice but I still kick myself that I wasted a few days living in that city on this stupid diet I mean it was ridiculous eating rice and honey. I think I was like 19 and she was you know I just listened to her and I said okay I'll do whatever you say anyway we all have these moments, but I've regained custody of rice and honey since. You'll be glad to know. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, it's again, it's the shape of the meal, isn't it? Like totally. it's not just about the taste or the food. It's about everything else that goes on around it. Oh, totally, totally. Which leads us on to, I guess, this, that the story about sad food versus solitude food, which came out of the Solitary Pizza essay mm. by Marie Andrew. And I love yeah. this idea that the difference of the two that solitude food is something you choose to have on your own you know it's maybe it's room service on a holiday or on your own or a meal on a plane I feel like that is such a that's such a meal you have you're sitting with hundreds of people but it's a very solitary meal isn't it you're probably watching a film and you're just in your own little bubble or you know a pastry and a coffee yeah. in a cafe or in, with your book whereas sad food is I guess like the meatballs and the honey you know foods that's sort of tinged with sadness because of a particular experience do you do you, do you sort of I thought <laughs> I was going to say that um I, I thought and she took that idea even further didn't she with the beginning of the essay of sad food about the food itself having the sadness in it like she <laughs> talked about the, the last cake left on the supermarket shelf which has the happy birthday written in it and no one's there to claim it or the the shop-bought biscuits that sit alone on the in the classroom Mm-hmm. on the table because all the other kids have taken the homemade biscuits and I thought that was really interesting that infusing the emotion into the food rather than I was sad and I had this biscuit and I no longer want to eat that flavor biscuit so I kind of think um sad food or solitude it could be this one and the same depending on actually what's happening for you couldn't it it could be I mean I feel I, like solitary food yeah is more of a choice, isn't it? It's like you're you're choosing mm. to enjoy p- potentially that that meal on your own. Do you have an example of a of, of, of sad food or a food that you've that's been a bit ruined for you because of an experience, or do you not get so kind of connected with it on that level? It's actually, I think it, I was thinking about this earlier. If it was, a, I feel like there's some meals, like a whole meal together that feel like they've been ruined from experiences or from meals being eaten with people who are no longer here yeah rather than a particular type of food or yeah so I think it's more the shape of the entire meal for me where it might Mm -hmm. feel sad as Mm -hmm. opposed to like you know my solitude food definitely a club sandwich in a hotel room service feels like mm-hmm. just the ultimate luxury. And I can't even, I'm just trying to think if that would ever feel sad, but I guess. I guess it depends, doesn't it? No, it's about the shape of the experience. It just depends, yeah. yeah. What about you? Well, my sad food would have to, like 
weirdly, would be strawberry jam. And I wrote about this actually in A Basket by the Door when, when I was living overseas. I first moved to Italy and I was really lonely. Like I didn't know anyone. I couldn't speak the language and it was completely on my own. And But I'd catch the train to Turin every Sunday and I'd buy strawberries. I don't know why. It was beginning of spring, end of winter. And I'd buy all these strawberries and I'd go home and I'd like cook them and make strawberry jam to kind mm. of try and make this apartment, which was so grim, smell a bit like home and feel a bit like right. home. You know, the the, the smell yeah. of the sugar and the vanilla and the strawberries and the lemon, it did lift me. It did lift my spirits and it gave my apartment mm. a smell. But I did that for quite like a few Sundays in a row. And now, honestly, that the smell of strawberry jam or the taste of it just makes me feel lonely like it just snaps me straight back there right. and um I can't ever no right. I can't stand the idea of it and I would never I did say I'm never ever going to write a recipe for strawberry jam because it just makes me feel sad yeah I mean what the upside of it was though that I would take these jars of jam into work every Monday morning and give them to people because I couldn't eat it all eventually people started like including me in their plans and I'd stop making jam and Right. <laughs> it was a way of connecting. Yeah, it was, it was. But, yeah, no, it's funny, like I really have this sort of visceral reaction to the smell and taste of strawberry jam because it takes me back to those yeah. lonely Sundays. Yeah. yeah, I think it's funny. Like, you, But I've, I've attached, you know, like I think I did just attach a lot of emotion to that, um, probably too much, but it's good to sort of have somewhere to put those feelings and then move on when you're well, on. Well, that's right. Yeah, that's a way to contain them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, yeah, no, I, I like that idea of, of solitary versus sad food. And there's a really funny Tumblr account, I'll link it in the show notes, called Dimly Lit Meals for One, and it is like a carousel of sad food. It's it's really badly photographed, <laughs> grim meals. Anyway, it's quite funny. And the, and the woman who runs it is very funny. Her captions are hysterical. So anyway, I'll link to that. But Right. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah. It made me think actually of an episode we did where we talked about not taking the care or the time to cook for yourself, mm. the cooking for one. I'm just, I can't remember the book it was, what we we're talking about, but that was really quite poignant, like not deserving of, of oh, cooking. Um, of that was Rebecca May Johnson's. Small fires, yeah. Uh, I, Small fires, that's right. I couldn't agree more. I loved that that idea of, yeah, like, I mean, self-care is such an obvious word, but it is. It's the ultimate self-care, isn't it? It's taking the time to cook for yourself. And that's the solitude food idea rather than the sad, lonely piece of toast for dinner. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I like, for mm. me, if I'm home on my own, I make the same thing every time, which is just, like, so basic, but it's a pasta with a tomato-y sauce and, and tuna in it and because nobody in my family likes tuna in their pasta sauces but I do so it's like my thing and I put heaps <laughs> of chili in there and I just have this big bowl of I mean pasta is the ultimate like comfort food isn't it really yeah but I was reading the Sydney Morning Herald did a recent like roundup of what all their food writers and favorite chefs their comfort food what they make for themselves and so many of them were carbs like noodles or pasta with chili like chili oil mm-hmm. or kimchi or yeah. yeah so I think we all kind of reach for that like a bit of a lift, but also the comfort, the heft of um, yeah. of carbs. So I like that too. But then a bit of spice and excitement. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to, <laughs> to lift yeah. it up, lift it up. Mm. Um, are there any more essays that that sort of struck a chord with you that you wanted to mention before we move on? Yeah, just thinking about the um, still the idea of the food and metaphor idea. There was that essay in there, Hot Cross Buns mm. by Leanne Shapton, who's a writer, and she wrote about being pregnant. And a high risk of losing her baby and the only thing she could stomach, the only thing she ate without throwing up was um, hot cross buns. I, I really like that that, play, that idea of um, only being able to stomach a bun while trying to keep your bun in the oven. That's what <laughs> yeah. kind of, that was really quite moving. And she wrote the prayer when she was, you know, hoping that uh, pregnancy, you know, she'd be able to hold on to the pregnancy. She said, the prayer came into my mouth, not out of it. So, yeah, I found that one very moving as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, again, very much a story about food in a very particular moment in time. I'm, I wonder how she, she actually, obviously she still feels very thankful for the hot cross buns because she wrote a, gave a recipe in the book for hot cross buns and she talked about her daughter running around so it all worked out in the end. I imagine every time she eats hot cross buns she thinks about all that hope and fear and waiting time. Yeah, that 
got me as well. This I, th- I think I was really struck by the way people could g- put the emotion into food and then write about it. Yeah, I think so. And even, you know, all of us, people who don't necessarily work in food or work in emotions or if you st- if we asked mm-hmm. anyone we know to write one of these essays, everybody would have a story, wouldn't they, of food and feelings and food yes. and emotion, even if they don't think of themselves as particularly kind of food obsessed or but I loved another one I loved was Sean Clifford's essay and she I love her anyway she's Claire from Fleabag the sister who plays that wonderful yes. wonderful character yep. I just loved her about intuitive eating and yeah this idea of, of binding food to all these feelings and then letting them go and just being able to enjoy it I think that was a really nice um yes well for negative I, I love that one too I loved how she described how she realised she was seeing food through a terrifying kaleidoscope filter of good and bad, right and wrong, learned and made up. And the kind of the way through that was to recognise how food is neither good or bad, mm-hmm. which just reminds me also of helping people deal with their emotions. I think a lot of a lot of us sort of start thinking that there are bad emotions, like I don't want to have to feel, you know, that they're the wrong emotions to feel um, and how do I just feel good emotions. But I think it's when um, we start recognizing that emotions are just emotions Mm. and we're just meant to feel them but it takes a whole layer of or it takes that lens away of this is bad I shouldn't feel this way or or, this is good and how do I keep feeling this way yeah that was similar with actually her problems around food I think quite a helpful essay for people actually I agree it actually made me think a little bit about our conversation about milk fed the Melissa Broder's book we did last time Mm. that idea of putting so much guilt and so much pressure on food to do something for us, whether it's to make us feel good or bad or, and when you take that away, it's just food and enjoy it or don't eat it, you know, but it's just, yeah, yeah I thought that was, um, reminded me of that, but yeah, I just, I thought she wrote really well. Apparently she's got a really good newsletter, Sean Clifford, which I'll link to in the, um, oh. she's just started the Substack, oh, which is apparently really good. So I'll link to that as well. And before we move on to our letter, I did love, you flagged this one as well, the one about, the sushi restaurant in Tokyo. Um, I thought that was that was excellent. <laughs> yes, Richard Shepherd wrote that um, on Mission Zero. Mission Zero. Well, yeah. and after reading that short story or essay, I went off and because he mentioned that he and his wife had seen this documentary, Jiro Dreams of mm. Sushi, which which was about the restaurant, um, which is you know one of the most famous sushi restaurants in the world, but it's in a subway arcade in Tokyo mm. underground but he writes of how it was you know they they waited and waited to get this booking because it's booked out months in advance and they like they they do a practice run to get to this restaurant in time so they're not going to be late on the day and they get there and and they're out in like 20 minutes like all this incredible sushi and it's completely quiet and Jiro the sushi chef is like staring at them as they eat 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 each mouthful and it's like <laughs> they've got some tests they have to pass and even after watching the documentary, like amazing, he's a real artist and like an incredible, it's a really good documentary, but I'm not super excited about going there. And maybe I'm not as sort of as big a foodie as those guys are, but it just doesn't sound all that enjoyable, that experience. I don't want to be judged while I eat. You it know? sounded very stressful. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it sounded very stressful and it was very much about that your own personal experience of the taste of it wasn't mm-hmm. it? It wasn't about the atmosphere or the or sharing it even because what he said it was the most expensive meal they'd ever had and it was over in thirty minutes. Yes, <laughs> but it's funny to me that yes, like I agree. You and I talk about this all the time. We said at the top of the episode, food is more than just the food on the plate or a meal or the the way we think about cooking and feeding people. It's about where you are and who you're with and the light and the flowers and the music and the whole experience, whereas these restaurants, these food experiences are the opposite of that. Everything else is stripped away and it's just the pure enjoyment or appreciation of this piece of sushi or I guess I've not had that for a long time. I haven't been to a restaurant like that for ages and not many in my life, but I don't know. It's not my chosen way to enjoy yeah. food. I want the whole package. I want the good food. I think that sounds a bit too serious and judgy for me, that restaurant. Yeah, yeah, you want the whole shape of it. And the, like what you said in up front about the writer who talked about it being about the 
food. Who is that? The, um, sorry about the people he was eating with. The, Matt Flanders. Um, Matt Flanders. And then in another um, essay, Lamorne Morris, who's an actor who I had not heard of before but I've gone and Googled him, wrote, I'm not obsessed with great food. I'm obsessed with the environment in which I eat said great food. And I feel the same way. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's the whole package yes. for me. The last one essay I was going to mention is um, the one by Tony Hale, who's also mm-hmm. the very funny actor who's in, you know, Gary the Bagman in Veep and in the rest of development. And he's talking about the environment you eat in. He just loves chain restaurants. <laughs> he can't understand anyone who thinks chain, why would you want to eat in a chain restaurants? And he wonders if that's to do with the fact that chain restaurants provide certainty in life and your expectations will be matched every time. And there's something in that, isn't there? Mm-hmm. I think particularly when you have small children, there's mm-hmm. something in the regular chain restaurant, I guess because you can predict that environment, you might not be able to predict how your children will behave in that environment. True. But there's a safety in prediction somewhere. True. Oh, I, I, Absolutely. And I think whatever makes people happy and whatever you, you know, makes you feel safe and held or whatever, I think, and we've all got restaurants, whether it's a, fast food chain restaurant or local down the road or, or, or a space where you feel like every time you walk in the door there is that consistency and you know what you're going to get and there is something mm. lovely about that. You know, there's a restaurant here in Orange called Fiorini's right on the sort of foot of Mount Canopolis and it's this funny little green shed and the, the chefs are these two Italian ladies who are just so hospitable and lovely. But, you know, it's the menu has not changed for as long as I've been going there, which is about 15 years not changed at all. Every time I go in there, I, I'm going to have the same meal, you know, but it's warm and it's friendly and there's a reassurance in that. My kids love it and we, we always have a really nice time, but it's, it's the same every single time and it's probably mm-hmm. not the best meal. It's not. I mean, I know it's not like a gourmet experience, but it's just, mm. it's a happy time and we're looked after there and it's a happy place serving good mm. food, you know, and I think there's a place for that. You know, you're going to have a good time when you go there. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Um, Emotionally, you're held again, aren't you? As you said, you feel safe there or you feel held there or, yeah, we're back to this idea actually of always like the stability of family mm -hmm. in a different way or the stability of feeling loved and cared for. Mm. Yeah. It's like, cheers, we all want that bar where everybody knows your name, don't we? And then we want to go to the other places and have, you know, scary sushi. But... (laughs) the balance (laughs) but you want to be able to go back you want to be able to go back to the bar where everyone knows your name that's true yeah yeah totally so shall we move on to our letter is there anything else about this book that you wanted to cover off before we moved on I think we've covered most of it there's heaps more in there obviously that people can uh, go and discover for themselves but um, hopefully we've given a bit of variety about what's in there yeah it's interesting we obviously both picked up on a lot of the same themes and essays yeah as well and I think that um Mm. there's an audio version where the people who wrote the essays are reading them as well um so I'll link to that which would be be really great Rosie Perez does a wonderful piece about Puerto Rican chicken dish that she loves and I'd love to hear her reading that she's Mm. I think she's just got such a fabulous delivery I love her and then you can go straight to your recommendation sure let's do that okay and for any new friends here on the podcast if you haven't listened to us before we do a letter we have a listener letter every episode so if you have uh anything at all you want to ask us if you want a recommendation of something to eat and read for a particular scenario or feeling please get in touch we would love to hear from you so here we go i'm going to read our letter I love to listen to your podcast. Thank you. I was reminded last episode that you like to get Mm -hmm. letters requesting book suggestions and recipes that suit your circumstance. Again, thank you. I live on a farm in regional New South Wales and I'm part of a book group consisting of about a dozen farming women. We were looking for a regular social outing where we would discuss more than the latest depressing weather conditions or mouse plagues, etc. It's become a very important part of all our lives and has helped us through many tough times. I was wondering if you have any recommendations for an uplifting book that has plenty to make us think and chat about. We take turns to cater for these meetings and I would love a suggestion of a light meal or snacks and cake to suit the book we study. Thank you again for your wonderful pod, Jenny. Mm. Okay. Great letter. 
We love a book club. It is a great letter. And there's something again there around um, how books connect people mm-hmm. and food. Books and food connect people. This idea of um, these women coming together to not just be distracted from difficult things happening in their lives, but to also try and, or, or to have moving and, and deep conversations as well. And I know a letter writer asked for an uplifting book. And I think a bit like food not being good or bad or emotions not being good or bad, I, we could probably argue if this book is uplifting or heavy, depending on the way you read it. But Ooh. the book I've um, chosen <laughs> is a memoir and it's called Desire, A Reckoning by Australian writer Jessie Cole. I think it came out a couple of years ago. But So Jessie lives in northern New South Wales, embarks on an affair as she approaches middle age. Well, I think she's actually 39, it's not really middle age, with an older man who lives interstate. It's a story of, of how she covers more about herself by embarking on this affair but also the ways the relationship tests um, her fears and anxieties about herself and past relationships, but also how it regenerates and heals her. And the reason it really came to mind when thinking about a, a meaty kind of book for discussion was also it. she sets it against the backdrop of um, our last horrific bushfires in Victoria and New South Wales and the floods in northern New South Wales and the pandemic. It's that sounds really heavy, but I was really struck by how she managed to create the weather and the earth as almost like a back another character in the book, and and how important the earth we live in, or the place we choose to call home, and the land that we live on, how much that can become a part of us. And so that just resonated for me, thinking about these women who are all farm in far, you know farming families, and how much the land must mean to them. And I wondered if this would be an interesting conversation for them to have about how Jessie feels about her property and the Australian landscape where she lives, contrasted with her lover who lives in a very urban city and how these women feel about living in the country Mm. and what their land means to them. There's so much in there just about life, those questions we all have about what is home and what is our place and what it means to be a woman and a mother, the narratives we build around the relationships we have and and also what it means to desire at different stages of life. And you know, one critic described the book as one woman's delicate unstitching to find herself. And I was just thinking, oh, I think it would be great in a book club or a group of friends to think about the ways we unstitch ourselves mm. and then um, help sit ourselves back together throughout life. So, so that's the kind of meaty discussion I was thinking for my book, mm. and I'm curious to know how you're going to temper that with the food. <laughs> I thought for this one, and I've talked about them before, a chatter platter. So I love this idea of not having to do a whole big meal that you plate up, but instead a chatter platter. So just a big board of. Um, good things to sort of pick out and graze on as you have these meaty discussions. And I think that with any good chatter platter, you need one or two kind of key uh, standout features in the middle of it. And for this one, I've come up with like a, it's like a cob loaf, but you get one of those big rounds of brie or camembert. They're pretty cheap in the supermarkets at certain times here, I find. Well, they go a long way. And so you, you hollow out your, your cob loaf and then you're going to do a layer of this really easy and really yummy pickled rhubarb. It sounds really weird, but stay with us. It's kind of like tangy and sharp and bitey, but with a sweetness and, you know, I think cheese and fruit, especially hot hot breeze, just a match made in heaven. So you're going to put a little layer of your pickled rhubarb in and I'll put the recipe in the show notes. And then the whole big brie that you've sliced the top off, then nuts, thyme, bit of olive oil, drizzle that, put that in a hot oven with the bread that you've taken out around um, the side so it all crisps up. And it's really yummy and just smells amazing. It looks really good. So I'd put that in the middle of my big chatter platter and I would just surround it with like olives and some cured meats and some a few little dips and some fruit and I went to a friend's house the other day and she did a big chatter platter style meal and she had a few little bowls of like mixed sweets in there as as well like it was just such a delight it was such a treat you know to mix it up and grab whatever you felt like and just joyful like I think we need I totally understand where this woman's come from because you go to these events sometimes and when when there's a drought or mice plays or whatever and it's so easy just to kind Mm. of 
feel because we are weighed down by them. So, you know, if a book that kind of gives you something to take your head out of that space or a little bowl of jelly pineapples or a hot brie or whatever it is, just go for joy. I was reading Mm. someone, a writer I know was talking about um, they have a joy toolbox that they reach into when they need when they need joy and for her, for her it's those jellied pineapples that I just mentioned they just didn't, they just make her feel joyful the color <laughs> of them makes her think of holidays they're sweet they're yummy so I would do something like that and for a cake what I was thinking was actually like a more of a slice but like a crostata which is that Italian it's like a pastry basically sweet pastry with a layer of jam and then you do it that crisscross lattice pastry topping which is really easy to use and I if I'm going to try and put a um it's easy to do I'll I'll try and do a little video for our subscribers of just how easy that is but a couple of reasons it's done completely in advance you can slice it up and put a little dollop of yummy double cream on top and that's an easy dessert just to pass around Mm. but also country women generally have a lot of jam on hand like right now I've just come out of my Big, I was, I've made heaps of quince jam, heaps of fig jam because we've had it all here. And then you think, Shivers, how am I going to use all this jam because I didn't sterilise my jars properly because I'm lazy. <laughs> I've got to do a few jam-heavy recipes and I feel like a lot of my friends are in the same boat. So, or just go to the shops and buy jam. But I love a crustata. To me, they seem really cheerful and they look beautiful. Mm. It's this golden pastry and beautiful jam with a bit of cream. Yum. That's what I would suggest. Or you could just make a big cheddar platter and just buy some more yummy chockies and treats and do a, a, a sweet cheddar platter for dessert. But how do you, oh, what do you think about there. my weird rhubarb brie cobbler situation? Do you think you could come at it? I think that sounds delicious. Uh, yeah, that rib, I love rhubarb. I, I think I've only ever had it, you know, as part of like a, a crumble or a dessert, not not with cheese. So oh, it's good. I'd be very curious to see how that turns out I think you need to pickle it because you get that that bite of the acidity which kind of counters mm. the, the 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 really dense gooey creaminess of the cheese and then the the chip the nuts on top give crunch so you can kind of create this perfect mm. mouthful with all the textures and flavors in it which is you know the aim of the game but can I can I pop a book in as well I know I don't want to step into your territory <laughs> But it's literally just sitting here and made me think of it. It's Darling by India Knight. Have you heard about this? Yeah, no, I've heard about it online, but I haven't read it. No. So it's a modern retelling of Nancy Mitford's Pursuit of Love. And Maggie McKellar, mm-hmm. who has just written the beautiful book Graft, she recommended it to, I think, on her newsletter. It is a delight. Like it, it's laugh out loud funny, it's quite rude at times. It's a bit like, you know, Curtis Sittenfeld did Eligible, which was a modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice. It's got that kind of go about it. So lots of contemporary cultural references, but characters that you know and love already, you know. Um, So, you know, Uh I just loved it. Anyway, and it's such a beautiful cover, isn't it? I'll take a photo, the illustration. So I've actually ordered a couple from my bookshop and I'm going to pop them in my present drawer and have them as as a little gift because I think it will be a beautiful present for a friend because it's just completely joyful. And whether or not maybe the Mitford's not your thing, but um, I've always loved The Pursuit of Love. So it's a great book if that's kind of. Yes. If you want some real like proper escapism to a big old country house in Suffolk and it's just heaven and lots of good food in there actually. Yeah. So sorry, I couldn't resist slipping that in because I literally picked it up today, uh, the extra copies that I'd ordered and they're sitting on my desk. So. They got some lucky friends. Yeah, I don't know. I just I think as you would know because you've written a book about it, giving books and book prescription like it's such a great gift just to give someone, isn't it? Yeah. Um. Sorry, go on. Sorry, I was going to say there's a shape there, isn't there? Because you see, you get given that book and it's just on your shelf, and there's almost like it's almost got an attached photo of the person who gave it to you. Mm-hmm. There is something else that comes with the book then I think or there's a reason that there's something in that book that made that person think of you or want to share that with you which I think is yeah really special I was reading another newsletter Pandora Sykes have you come across her she did that podcast the Hilo with yeah and she did a a really great um newsletter about books to give people who are grieving which is obviously in your I mean Mm. you've written as again a, a book full of recommendations like this but she was saying that 
and this is next level organization that she keeps a little bookshelf of books to give like new books that she's bought like three of each to give to friends for certain Mm -hmm. times so there's like her grief section and her new mum section and it's like god imagine being that organized that you've got like a bookshelf of presents to give to people at exactly the right moment (laughs) I mean you're a bibliotherapist is that something that you have a little stash of books on hand to give to friends when they need them it's funny actually because a friend recently asked me about a, a book for a grieving friend whose husband had just died and again it's that there isn't one size fits all is there because some people you know for her so we sort of went through the what is she wanting to escape that or is she wanting to feel like she's recognized in someone else's grief or is she wanting to mm-hmm. understand it more on a spiritual you know like there are so many different ways we respond to those huge life events mm-hmm. and so the same thing about becoming a mother or the same thing about a relationship breakdown so yes yeah, so and we ended up she wanted a book that echoed what she was feeling and there was a brilliant book written by a psychoanalyst whose husband died she was only in her 40s or 50s I'm gonna have to put in the show notes what it's called because it's completely slipped my mind the title but it was all about going through the shock of his illness and going through his death and then the aftermath and how even being a psychoanalyst doesn't prepare you for what your grief is going to actually feel like. Mm. My friend got back to me and said, oh, she just loved it. She felt really seen. And that was within the first couple of months of her husband's death. In six months' time, that might be a horrific book to read. Yeah, so I don't know it's that prescriptive where it would be good just to have a shelf of, you know, this is the perfect book for Mm -hmm. death, this is the perfect book for birth. And, And also that whole thing I was did an interview recently actually about reading for well-being and and you know when people are really stressed or burnt out that escape even a book that gives you an escape like that the book you just showed the Indian Night book for someone else an escape might be a Stephen King horror book or a mm. or or one of those spy novels that gets turned into a movie it's just um it's such a subjective or again it's such a shape of mm. experience that is hard to kind of go en masse, this is the ideal book for that. And I guess that's the core of bibliotherapy, isn't it? Because it is so personal and, and you're able mm. to. And I remember you saying to me that often people come to you because they've been bought about, like they've been bought a few sessions as a gift. And I think that is just the most thoughtful, mm. the most thoughtful thing you can do for someone because, as you say, a book that helped me through a particular time is going to be completely different for somebody else, but you can actually dig into exactly what that person might want or need not that it's yeah and that actually reminds me of um I had a client once who who was um widowed and her and she didn't want to go out anywhere and her book club friends gave her a voucher for bibliotherapy and it was really beautiful because they saw that she and she said to me I'd prefer to just be home with my books and talking to people Mm. and then what a special gift from those book club friends is Mm -hmm. I will go and get some more books to help yeah even without giving a specific book but showing that you understand someone might be needing a book or Mm -hmm. words of comfort in other ways Mm -hmm. is is just as thoughtful as the right title oh totally well we should probably let everyone go because there's a lot of reading in this episode for people to follow up on should they choose and you've got to go and read you know a whole book of freud i would get back to freud yeah (laughs) For a bit of light relief. <laughs> oh my gosh, Jermaine. Well, thank you so much for making time to chat with us today and to our beautiful listeners and our subscribers who we so appreciate. We're, lots of recipes yes. and ideas are coming your way soon. Is there anything else that we should mention before we sign off, Jermaine? Oh, just, well, like you've already said, and like our letter writer reminded oh, us, yes. you know, we're always looking for letters and and the letter get, that gets read out also gets a case of wine from Highgate Wine from Single Vineyard Cellars as a thank you. So it's another added incentive to write to us. And our next book, I think next we'll be doing a mini-sode, won't we, on uh, dinner parties. Dinner parties. Two words that strike fear in the hearts of so many of us. (laughs) Dinner party. (laughs) I can't wait to share that one. And we've got some other fun things coming up. So thank you again. And if you do like the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you might subscribe and share it, review it and do all those things, which we're hopeless at reminding everyone to do, but they do help kind of 
I guess, spread the word. Yes, that's right. And thanks, Jermaine. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you in a month. Yes, perfect. Thanks, Sophie. Bye. Sometimes I get to thinking I ought to take up drinking Just to drown out all these memories Maybe I could down a whiskey bottle And head out on that highway Just to see if it'll bring some peace But I ain't a drinking girl I'm just a small town woman trying to find my way in a lonesome world and i ain't a whiskey girl i'm just a small town woman trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world Thank you.